This short jaunt is a story about a place and a family. It's also about malls. Let's start there. Mall is a weird word, right? I mean, I guess any word is weird when you think too much about it, but I recently learned about the origins of the word and I wanted to share. And you're about to hear me say it a lot. It's definitely going to sound weird by the time I'm done. In the 1600s, the British used to play a game called Paul Mall. It was similar to croquet. It would be played on a long strip of land called a mall. In London, near Buckingham Palace, there was a mall where King Charles II played Paul Mall. And by the 1700s, it was a park where fancy Londoners would walk around and check out each other's dresses and talk about each other and evaluate courtiers, I'm guessing, if Bridgerton is any indication. As things go, fancy people in other parts of Europe and settlers in North America wanted to promenade on malls too. So over the 1700s and 1800s, they popped up all over. One of the most notable is the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which was designed for this purpose in the early 1900s, but was designed to be open to people from all over the country, not just fancy people. So basically, a mall was a place where people would meet, walk, socialize. Shopping malls, believe it or not, were created with the same purpose in mind. The word mall isn't a coincidence. (laughs) It was a deliberate choice. The person responsible for modern-day shopping malls was a Viennese architect named Victor Gruen. He came to the U.S. in the 1930s to escape rising anti-Semitism in Austria and Europe. In the 40s, he formed his own architecture firm and was tasked with building retail stores in the newly formed suburbs of American cities. This was around the time that people were leaving urban centers and settling into these quieter suburban developments. While he was enlisted to build department stores in those areas, he wanted to make the projects a little more meaningful than just a place to buy stuff. He missed the culture of Vienna, where stores were on the same streets as cafes and parks and fountains, where those parts of town were filled with pedestrian socializing in addition to shopping. While his first projects placed these stores still outside, kind of like a strip mall, but with a few other beautiful elements outside and places for people to, to sit and meet. In the 50s, he was commissioned to build the first true shopping center. He wanted it to be what sociologists call a third place, a place where people could congregate that wasn't work or home. He wanted it to be like a community center, offering services and social areas, not just a consumer center. I think it's fair to say he succeeded. Like, who hasn't (laughs) hung out at a mall? So that's malls. Let's talk about the Eatons. The Eaton family was once considered Canadian royalty mainly because they were rich and powerful. But at one point, they honestly knew royalty and had met royalty. In 1854, Timothy Eaton, an Irish-slash-Scottish man who came from a farming background, came to Canada to join his brothers and sisters who had already moved here. I won't give you the full play-by-play of his business career because there were a lot of moves and there's a lot of information online. But what I will tell you is he was you know, a pretty clever businessman. And in only a couple decades, he grew an empire of businesses and his brand anchored by his department store, Eaton's. He also had a beloved catalog business, which allowed people from across the country to buy his products before he started opening stores outside of Toronto and Ontario. At Eaton's, you could buy your groceries, get your shoes shined, buy your family clothes. The goal was not needing to go anywhere else but Eaton's. 
In a way, it's similar to that mall concept before we really had it, Gruen's version of malls, but it was really only in service of making him money. It, it wasn't designed that way to foster a community space. It was designed that way so that people had no reason to go to any other store besides Eaton's. His success is credited to his business sense and his accounting skills and to being an aggressive competitor to Simpsons, the other department store in town. If you're familiar with the entrance on Queen, uh, right across the street is the Hudson's Bay building that we have today slash Saks Fifth Avenue. That was previously where Simpsons was. So Eaton's and Simpsons were right across the street from each other. Timothy Eaton was also ahead of the curve when it came to some workers issues. He shortened work days and work weeks before others did, and he offered a rudimentary version of health benefits. However, he was famously against labor unions, and his staff did participate in some of the labor protests happening at the time. Some say he implemented these things to get ahead of bad press, like he understood it was a smart business decision to be seen as a benevolent employer, but maybe just at his core, he just didn't want to openly support unions to save face with the business community. <laughs> I'm just guessing. He had a similar approach with his pricing strategy. He was one of the first to offer fixed prices for goods so that they were in reach for both the rich and the working class. At the time, people often held credit at stores and were able to haggle prices. So obviously someone with wealth would be better received at a store like that. They'd be trusted that they'd pay off their credit. They'd be trusted that they could recognize the value in an item and able to haggle effectively. So having a fixed price that applied to anyone regardless of their status was, you know, a welcome equalizer at the time. He is also credited by some as the first to offer refunds on unsatisfactory goods. Again, in my opinion, these were definitely smart business decisions, but they weren't acts of charity. <laughs> he was a textbook capitalist and his family benefits from it to this day. When he died, his son, John Craig, took over the business. And when his son, John David, came of age, he took over as well. When John David died in 1973, his sons took over until the stores closed in 1999. He had four sons, but from what I understand, John Craig II was the one who really kind of led the way when it came to Eaton's. The others seemed to have pursued other interests. One of them became a race car driver. Before we talk about the end of Eaton's, the store, let's talk about the Eaton Center. The Eaton Center opened in 1977. It was built to house the flagship Eaton store as part of a larger redevelopment project of the block between Dundas and Queen and Bay and Young, a lot of which had belonged to the Eaton family pretty much since he opened his first store here on Young Street. The flagship store was where Nordstrom now is in the Eaton Center. The redevelopment erased a number of small streets that used to be within this block. One of them was called Albert Street, and from what I understand, it led from the Young Street entrance, the one that's just a little bit south from Dundas by the Roots store, to the doors directly across from it next to Zara, leading into Trinity Square. There is an Albert Street still off of Bay, but a lot of it was absorbed into the Eaton Center. These doorways are meant to be right across from each other, so there's still an easy way to get through the mall and get into Trinity Square. Speaking of, let's talk about Trinity Square for a sec. The square is named for the Holy Trinity Church, the old Gothic church that was built here in 1847, a little over 20 years before Eaton opened his first store in Toronto. The church was built with funds anonymously donated to John Strawn, Toronto's famous or infamous by some bishop from Toronto's earliest days. The instructions given along with the money were the following. 
name it the Church of the Holy Trinity, and ensure that the seats are forever free to the public. It was really common in those days to pay for your seat in church. So that's why that was an important stipulation. It came to light later on that a British family, the Swale family, donated the money. After Mary Lambert Swale heard Strawn speak about how things were going in Toronto, and she learned about the paid pew situation at St. James Cathedral not far from here. They were pretty intense from what I understand with their pew statuses and prices, and she disliked it. So one version of the story is she sent the funds anonymously herself. Another version of the story is her husband and her sister knew how she felt about this church, and after she died, they sent the money on her behalf. Another version of the story is that the two sisters decided to send this money, but regardless, the money got here. The church was built. <laughs> it was built on what was a field at the time owned by the Macaulay family, and I also learned that apparently just north of here was a swamp. Next to the church is the rectory, or home, really, of Henry Scatting, who was assigned to be the church's priest. His father was John Scatting, the owner of Scatting Cabin. This building is called Scatting House, and it's a four-story yellow brick house with mismatched windows and a little covered balcony on the top floor. It was built in 1862 and is one of Toronto's oldest buildings. Let's get back to the mall and the Eatons. Do they still have anything to do with the mall or this huge chunk of downtown land that was theirs for such a long time? From what I can tell, no. After a long fight against other department stores, like the Bay, the business went bankrupt in 1999, at which point its storefronts and corporate assets were taken over by Sears. Cadillac Fairview, who have owned the building since its inception, they were the developer behind it, they decided to keep the name the Eaton Center in homage to Timothy Eaton's legacy. There even once was a statue of Timothy Eaton sitting on a chair, kind of like Lincoln, <laughs> in the mall, but now it's been moved to the ROM. While Timothy Eaton's descendants are still around, of course, they haven't really been in the spotlight since the 90s when the business shut down. It's a, it's a big shift because throughout the 1900s, they were known not only for the business, but for their lavish homes, their socialite wives. And on a darker note, they were in the news in the 80s after the tragic murder of Nancy Eaton. The company did go out of business, but that kind of wealth just doesn't go away overnight, and I'm sure the family is doing just fine financially. I know a few of them have served on, you know, boards, you know, have gotten involved in Toronto's institutions and businesses, but I guess it's just a sign of the times that they don't have the same kind of celebrity that they once did. That's the end of this short jaunt. I might share a few more tidbits on Instagram or the Patreon page, so stay tuned for those. Let me know if you liked this episode in the reviews or on social. You can follow me at walkingandplacepod on Instagram and placewalking on Twitter. Until next time.